Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hey audience, uh, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Podcast. Achieve Wealth Podcast talks to and interviews a lot of commercial real estate operators uh, who's, and focusing on a lot of uh, discussion about value-add real estate investing. Today I have Neil Bauer. Neil Bauer is from Grow Capitus, mm-hmm. a commercial real estate investment company. He negotiates, sources, and acquires commercial real estate properties across the U.S., he has like almost 400 investors right now, a uh, total portfolio size of 1,800 units, in which uh, like around 1,400 is multifamily and another 400 uh, student housing. And um, I'd like to welcome Neil. Hey, Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show, James. Very excited to be here. Good, good, good. So Neil is, uh, I mean, I'm, he has been on a lot of podcasts and you know, a lot of discussion goes around uh, the data collection and experiments that uh, you do in your, you know, asset management and in terms of your operation and just mm-hmm. finding the right cities, right yeah. market and also operation leasing. So there's a lot of data that's being collected, right? So so we can go through that in a short while. Uh, my question to you, Neil, in the first, first place is, why did you start collecting all this data? Well, I started collecting the data because I screwed up big time. So uh, I started my real estate career in reverse. I mean, most people will start with a single family rental, right? I was a technologist and I got a chance to actually build campuses from scratch. My boss, you know, helped me. He was, he was the CEO of the company. I was chief operations officer. This was a technology education company and we were growing so much that we decided we, we were not going to rent offices from somebody. We would build our own campuses. And so that project of building that campus was insanely complicated because, I mean, I hadn't even built a single family home, right? Here, here I am building a 27,000 square foot campus that's mixed use. It's got classrooms, administrative areas and restrooms. And I had to learn everything from, you know, egress and fire codes and, you know, doors that lock when, when there's a fire and, you know, ceiling heights, air conditioning, cooling, heating, and, and 500 other things, right, related to that. So it, it was a trial by fire. I learned very quickly and uh, did that in, in you know, in, in 2006. And so, you know, 2003, then again in 2006 and got very confident about real estate. I think in my mind, I got overconfident. And so I went and bought 10 single family homes in, in California, uh, timed them correctly due to no, you know, credit of my own. It was just, you know, 2008, 2009 and got, crazy confident. I thought I knew it all. I mean, the the fact was I knew nothing and I didn't understand that. And so I went to Chicago and bought 10 triplexes Mm -hmm. and I screwed up really big time. I made massive mistakes. None of those 10 properties really ever made any money. Um, and, and I realized just how little I knew. And I start because of that disaster, which basically was a million and a half that got tied up for five years with no returns in the middle of one of the greatest, you know, gain markets of all time. I realized that I needed to learn more. So I started collecting data about why those units never made any money. 
And what it came down to is that I was spending too much time looking at the rents and looking at the units themselves and not spending enough time looking at the area quality, the quality of the tenant base, the the demographics of the area, the income levels, job growth levels, the population growth. All of these demographics are mega factors that affect every single thing that we do. And they affect them in a way that's very difficult for us to ascertain. So it's almost like you're being carried along on a boat that's going somewhere at 50 miles an hour, but you cannot see outside the boat, right? That is the situation, that is the reality of what is happening. And so I started doing a lot of research and data collection. And the more I collected data, the more I realized how powerful it was if I could go beyond data collection to doing data analysis and applying the analysis from one city to another, applying the analysis from one neighborhood to another, from one state to another. And the more I did it, the better I got at it. And so I decided to do more and more and more of it. And that's how my journey started. Yeah, I think demographic analysis has been missed by a lot of gurus out there who are doing teaching real estate investing, especially even on the multifamily side, right? People are just looking at numbers right now. And, and I think commercial real estate consists of two things. So one is the user and the space, right? So, yep. And we are missing out the demographic side of it, which shows the demand, right? And, and I think that's where you know, what you're talking about in terms of demographic and also, the uh, what is the sub-market demand, right? What is changing over there? What's the crime rate? Who is staying there? What is the rental profile, right? What's the percentage of renters versus owners, right? It's just not many people knows how to analyze that. And that's a very important factor in making sure yeah, that... Yeah, they don't even look at it. I mean, keep <laughs> right. in mind, a neighborhood that has 30% homeowners and 70% renters mm-hmm. is very different, both good and bad, from one that has 70% homeowners, 30% renters, right? So these things matter so much uh, that that if you ignore them, then if you think that you're in control, that is illusion. That is an absolute illusion because those things are really driving either your profit or your lack thereof. That's really what's driving things, right? And so one example, I mean, I I teach a course, um, you know, um, it's called Real Focus. It's about... The, mm-hmm. the power of demographics and how to apply them to create profit. And I teach it live to about 4,000 people a year, and I teach it online to another 4,000 people. So there's about 8,000 people that take that course. And one of the examples that I like to give people is this. One of the most common statement, in fact, it might be the most common statement of all in real estate, is that real estate is local, right? So you hear that all the time. Real estate is local. Well, actually, real estate is not local. James, real estate is hyper-local, mm-hmm. hyper-local, right? So one of the cities that I use in my examples when I'm doing demographics labs for students is I talk about Columbus, Ohio. Columbus is a good city to invest in, right? Mm-hmm. So doing really well, population growth, job growth, income growth, all kinds of good things are happening there. So in Columbus, there is an, a small neighborhood that has an average median household income of $183,000, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is not an A, that's like an A++, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you couldn't really go much higher than that unless you're in the San Francisco Bay Area. You couldn't get much higher than 183000 Now, my, the point is that 500 yards away from this neighborhood is another neighborhood where the median household income is not 183000 It's not even 18000 It's mm-hmm. $6,000. Oh, okay. 500 yards between the richest neighborhood in Columbus, I think it's the second richest actually, Mm -hmm. 
and the poorest neighborhood in Columbus. That's how hyper-local real estate is. And if you don't understand how much that impacts you, obviously in this $6,000 you know, income area, it, that's a condemned area. No one there pays any rent. Everyone you know, lives there for free in abandoned buildings. To this $183,000 area where there's absolutely no cash flow, right? Because the income levels there are very high. There's really nothing available for sale. Everything's taken. Everyone there is rich. You know, single family homes that you know, probably are like a million bucks. The differences there are staggering. And the five, that 500 yards shows you how much you're missing if you don't understand how demographics drive everything. So I, mean, I definitely agree with you because I've seen, you know, deals in the hottest market in the country and, and people just talk about the city, right? But they don't talk about the sub-market itself or the particular location, right? So how would you go about defining the boundaries of where you want to def- define the demand for a specific deal? You know, that's a very interesting question. And I, um, it, what you're really talking about is, you know, where does a neighborhood stop? Where does right. a neighborhood end, right? So right. you could say something like, half a mile from me is a Whole Foods and next to it is a Starbucks. Therefore, I'm in the best area. But the reality of the situation is half a mile is also a very long distance. It's a very short distance and it's a very long distance. Remember, 183,000 to 6,000, right? That was half a mile. Mm-hmm. So what really could be the case is that right where that, where that Whole Foods is, 100 yards beyond that, there's a street. Maybe it's a railway line. Maybe it's a freeway. Maybe it's just a regular street. And everything beyond that is a different neighborhood, right? Different quality of neighborhood. So you can't really compare this neighborhood to the Whole Foods and, and, and Starbucks side. And maybe, just maybe, that neighborhood is only half a mile wide. And right where your property is, that street actually is another neighborhood, even lower class. So it's very common for people to say, half a mile from me is Whole Foods, but actually they're not in the Whole Foods neighborhood. They are not even in the neighborhood next to Whole Foods, which is lower grade. They're in a third lower neighborhood themselves, like two grades lower now, right? And that's, that's what everyone has to figure out if you're looking to do syndications or if you're looking to invest in projects. How do you figure these things out? There's, there's many ways to figure them out, to figure out where neighborhoods start and where neighborhoods end. Mm-hmm. Um, I use paid tools, so we'll, we'll talk about those and I'll also give you some free tools. Neighborhood Scout is, is you know, the best neighborhood tool I've seen. I've seen many of them, but neighborhoodscout.com allows me to do two things. It allows me to basically plug in an address. So it could be uh-huh. a 200-unit property. I plug in the address. I, I basically take pull out a report, and it shows me the neighborhood, and it also shows me the micro-neighborhood. Right now, there's a difference between those two, right? The neighborhood itself is very powerful because it'll tell you, you know, income levels, crime levels, you know, degree granting levels. Is it walkable? It'll tell you an insanely large amount of extremely useful and immediately actionable information. But the micro neighborhood part is even more powerful. So you'll see a map, and on the map, you'll see the neighborhood, right? You can clearly see what, what, what roads um, are, are part of this neighborhood. Where does the neighborhood start? Where does it end? Does it go all the way to that Starbucks? Does it not go all the way? But then inside of that map, you'll see a yellow dotted line, mm-hmm. which will show you a micro neighborhood. And the property that you just plugged in, the address, is always inside that yellow. 
And it, what, what Neighborhood Scout is trying to tell you is, okay, the greater neighborhood, maybe it's a mile by a mile, right? That's typical size for a neighborhood, you know, one mile by one mile, is this. And then you, your property is part of a micro-neighborhood inside of that. And how does it figure that out? What it does is it, it, it looks at your property, let's say it's a single family home, and it looks at the home opposite it and says, are these comparable? Okay, yes, they are. Okay, then it goes another block. Are these comparable? Yes. Are these comparable? Yes. Are these comparable? No, this is a completely different kind of unit. So it says, okay, those units are really not inside your micro neighborhood. Something changes there. Something's different. Maybe they're really ghetto or maybe they're really brand new. And so the quad, the neighborhood quality changes right at this line. So that dotted yellow line is very important to me because the moment I see that dotted yellow line, I put it on one of my monitors. On the second monitor, I bring up Google and I go switch into street view and I drive around the edges of that yellow dotted line because mm-hmm. I'm driving around the outside edges of the neighborhood that I'm investing in, right? So that gives me a feeling about the, that neighborhood. And then I drive the insides of the neighborhood. It's a micro neighborhood. So you can, on Google, I can basically mm-hmm. drive it in about 15, 20 minutes. It gives me a really good idea of what's going on in that neighborhood. Obviously, it's not a, you know, boots on the ground is better. I get that. But at this point, I've just received this property and I want to make a decision on whether I even want to you know, spend any time on the property. And this gives me that information. And Neighborhood Scout is very inexpensive, very, very inexpensive. I think you can even get like Neighborhood Scout for 39 bucks a month and you get 10 reports out of that. So essentially for $4, less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you're going to learn an astonishing amount about mm-hmm. this neighborhood. So, but... I mean, end of the day, we want to get rent comp. So, so let's say yep. your the property they're looking at is in the is is within that yellow dotted line, right? So, yep. but there's no other rent comp surrounding it, and now you have to go out of that yellow dotted line. Yep. You look at your rent comp. How would you compare the rent comp in that point of time? Because it's two different demographics. It definitely is, right? So there's an art and a science to the rent comp. Some of your rent comps will be inside the dotted line, so they'll be good. And some of them will be outside the dotted line. I think it's still useful because it's telling you where's your micro neighborhood and where's your neighborhood. So, but normally you'll find that the vast majority of the time, the comps from the broker are not inside the yellow line and they're not inside the neighborhood. They are right? in one mile circular radius. Exactly. And what, what's the, so people are like, well, this is only a mile away. Are you kidding me? I mean, in San Jose, we have we have areas where the average home value is a million dollars and half a mile away, the average home value is $400,000, right? And those are bad areas, like really high crime areas. So everything can change in a mile. And I think what this neighborhood scout does is it allows you to basically firstly figure out if you should even be using that rent comp, Mm -hmm. right? So it might be, it might only be three quarters of a mile away, but neighborhood scout shows you that your neighborhood, your your property, the one that you're looking at, is actually just at the end of that neighborhood. So that neighborhood is ending right next to your property, and then this is this is three quarters of a mile away in a completely different sort of neighborhood. So you shouldn't go in that direction looking at rent comps. But another rent comp that the broker provides, it may not, may not be in the neighborhood, but it's on the edge of that neighborhood. It's still only three quarters of a mile away, but that one makes more sense because your neighborhood ends right next to that comp. So that comp from the broker actually makes more sense. I, I'm not saying that every comp from a broker is fictional. That's not true. A lot of brokers uh, work hard on the comps. All I'm telling you is that out of five comps that a broker will give you, 
truly two or three are your neighborhood's comps. And this tool will show you which ones to pick. And then there's going to be a couple that are going to be direct. They are going to, geographically speaking, still be in that one mile radius, but they have nothing to do with your neighborhood. And that this tool will allow you to basically ignore them. And then on top of that, obviously, there's rent comp tools. There's you know tools like Rentometer and, and, and a number of others that for a five or ten you know dollar report, there's another one. I I'm, for the moment I, I'm you know st- also starts with the word rent. There's these tools where you pay fourteen dollars. I remember paying fourteen dollars for the this report, rent something, and it gives me a report that is specifically about single family and multifamily rents, right? Nothing to do with anything else, not demographics, simply about rents. And it gives me all kind of rent criteria, all kind of, you know, it gives me occupancy levels. Now I'm paying another 14 bucks and I've got rental information for my area, right? It's not giving me comps. It's basically explaining the per square foot rent. It's explaining the, you know, how many units in my neighborhoods are one bed, two bed, three bed, those sorts of things, so that I understand what the unit mix in that area is and if it's a good unit mix. So now I've spent $18, but I've gotten a huge amount of information. And what I find is people are unwilling to spend these $18, right? And syndicators are unwilling to spend these $18. And here's my message to you, right? As a syndicator, you only make money if your if your clients make money because they have a usually have a pref right so they're going to make money first and then you have to make money you realize that on a 300 unit property you can if it does well you can make a million dollars or even 2 million and if it does really really poorly you make 0 dollars so you're paid less than the janitor that cleans that property right, right. and it might be that the only difference it might be, and I know this is best case scenario, but it might be that the only difference between that two million bucks and not even making the janitor's salary, it might be those eighteen dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Because because you forgot that part. You, forgot you looked at everything else in the property and you fell in love with it. Correct. And it had a beautiful pool and it had a beautiful clubhouse and it had a beautiful this and a beautiful that. Yeah. But you forgot to look at the demographics. Yeah. Because one of the things I can tell you is some of the worst properties have the best looking. Um, you know, um, you know, uh, clubhouses, right? <laughs> so don't look at the damn clubhouse because they made it that good looking because they want to sell the freaking property to you and get out. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, I mean, demographic analysis is in the sub market, like what we are discussing right now, is very, very micro, right? And how do you really, really decide whether the deal has an upside in terms of rent? Because that's what we look for in a value add deal, right? I mean, unless you're not buying a value add deal, you just want cash flow that just cash flow. I mean, well, I think more and more of those deals, I mean, more and more of the value add are becoming cash flow. I mean, let's be honest here, James. I, nobody that I know of, that that I know, no syndicator that I know of, is able to drive up rents as much today as they were, you know, two years ago. Yeah. And certainly not as much as they were four years ago. So I, I think that, you know, true value add is becoming less and less available. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the deals that are full value add, where we say, okay, we're upgrading 80% of the units. I get that, that technically speaking, if you're upgrading 80% of the units, that's a, that's a full value add. But I would challenge whether all you know, 80% of those units would receive you know, $150, $200 rent bumps. Some will, some will, won't. I mean, the market is changing, the environment is changing. There's only a certain number of people in that neighborhood that can afford to pay that higher rent. And as you rehab more and more and more of the properties in that neighborhood, it becomes difficult, more and more and more difficult to achieve those those rent bumps. So I think more and more people are doing 
light value add. At least that's where I'm seeing the industry moving to. Oh, no, even myself, I've moved from deep value add two years ago to lighter. I mean, I still do value add, but it's no more the deep value that I used to do. And just because I'm doing more agency loan nowadays, no more bridge loans and all that, right? just because of the market cycle. So I think that's that's wise. That's really wise because, uh, you know, we have to be cognizant of where we are in the cycle. Correct. Um, and and so I think you're you're doing the right approach because a lot of these, you know, deeper value add, you know, projects. There's another name for them, and that is their higher risk. Higher right? risk, and you also pay a premium for it, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Nowadays, the and, sellers and brokers are, you know, you are basically overbidding that prices up, and you are basically taking the value away by paying more, right? So unfortunately, that's the case. I mean, our company right now has three rules. Mm-hmm. Number one, everyone is overpaying. Number two, everything we buy, we've overpaid. And number three, if we don't find new ways of adding value to the property after we buy it, we won't hit our performer. These are our three fundamental rules today in everything that we do. And none of these rules existed two years ago. Got it, got it. So coming back to the sub-market analysis, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Because I think you have talked about a lot of CTA-level analysis in a lot yeah. of other podcasts, so I don't want to repeat that again here. Mm-hmm. But coming to sub-market analysis, so let's say you have, you're trying to prospect a market, right? So let's say, I know you, you like Boise, Idaho, right? That's the yeah. top market that you see. So let's say now you have Boise, Idaho. How do you go about prospecting within this city, right? Uh, how do you look at whether the deal, because the the cap rate in certain part of the city may be different in certain part of the city, right? So, always, always, yeah. But it's, how it's do you gonna... how do you go about prospecting, or do you just get the deal and start going and analyze the deal? Well, the the, the true answer is that you know several years ago I didn't have the kind of broker and partner operator relationships that I have today. Mm-hmm. My initial approach was to use a tool like City-Data. I use a number of different tools, but, but um, Neighborhood Scout is my favorite neighborhood-level tool. City Data plus Local Market Monitor plus Housing Alerts, these three are my favorite city-level tools. And then, of course, there's CoStar. CoStar is not just a demographics tool, obviously. CoStar has a huge number of other benefits. The biggest benefit of CoStar is supply. It understands incoming supply in a market, mm-hmm. which as far as I know, no other demographic tools understands. Simply because CoStar has these 50 Prius cars that drive around 50 US metros on a daily basis, trying to figure out all new construction that's going on and totaling it up and trying to figure out if demand is in excess of supply, right? Mm-hmm. And in many, many great neighborhoods, really good neighborhoods, Demand is often not in excess of supply. That's because the neighborhood is so great that people are building 3,000 units in a two-mile radius of you, which means that everything might be hunky-dory now, but two years from now, you'll be in trouble. So I don't have a a cheap answer to give you when it comes to neighborhood supply levels. Really, Mm -hmm. CoStar is the best option to look at supply and make sure that you don't end up in a market where you'll have 3,000 brand new units delivering and they'll have, you know, two months off as concessions and basically tank your rents for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's my feedback on supply. Now, away from supply, looking at demographic trends, you can do that analysis on a tool called cdata.com, cd-data.com. Mm-hmm. So when I look at city-data, there's a map 
uh, on city dash data. So you you know you plug in the city. So it could be Houston, could be Columbus, could be whatever city you're in. Uh, it works better on mid-size and large-size cities. Doesn't work well on like a really teeny tiny city like St. George. You're not going to get as much value out of that tool. So so let's say you're in Houston, right? So go look at you know scroll down. And you'll see this very nice blue colored map of Houston, and you'll no- notice something very unique. This is this is something I haven't seen in any free tools. Mm-hmm. That map of Houston is already broken up into bits. And you'll notice that some of the bits are really tiny, like half a mile by half a mile. And some of the bits are big, two miles by two miles, three miles by three miles. And what city data is telling you is that that tiny little bit, everything inside that resembled everything else inside there. But that big one that's next to it, the two mile by two mile, once again, the same principle applied. Everything inside of that two mile radius resembled everything else. That's why some of these neighborhoods are tiny, some are mid-size, some are large-size. So what you're really looking at in that map are the neighborhoods in that particular city, right? And if you click on any one of those little tiles, a box will pop up. And that box will give you information specifically about that neighborhood. And I, there are five metrics in that box that I like to use. Now, keep in mind, if you pay for Neighborhood Scout for that particular address, you'll see more information than this, but obviously you're paying for that. Mm-hmm. If you want something for free, here it is. That box, the first thing I, you want to see in that box is the income level in that micro neighborhood. Remember, it might be like 400 yards by 400 yards. You want the income level, the median household income level in that neighborhood. You want it to be above $40,000. 38 is still okay in some of the Midwest states, but what I find is when when you're down to 35, it doesn't matter where in the US you are, you're going to have delinquency trouble. So median household income of 38,000 is 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 the minimum acceptable level for multifamily projects. You can obviously this number has to be higher if you happen to be in San Francisco. It has to be higher if you're in New York. So I'm I'm going to basically say the rule doesn't, it, that 38K number is really for um, markets that cash flow, right? So mm-hmm. Texas markets, Florida markets, you know, maybe not Miami, but the rest of the Florida markets uh, that cash flow, maybe not, you know, central Austin. Um, so understand what I mean by, you know, cash flowing markets. Here's what you'll see at 38K, when that number, the median household income in that box, when it starts going below 38K, your delinquency levels start rising. And the true killer of profit is not occupancy. The true killer of profit is churn. And churn is tied to delinquency. Delinquent tenants, some of them do care about their credit. And so they just simply move out. They just leave a key and move out. And they they basically say, yeah, I'm going to skip. And let's see if this guy's going to chase me because they know 90% of the time it's not worth your while to chase him and try and get that money. You just move on, you rent out your unit, you move on with your life. And these skips and the delinquency connected with them, the repainting, the, uh, the, the, the time that it takes, the, the marketing costs, the effort, the people time kills your profit. And what I've found is by the time you drop from $38,000 in median household income to 30, the property and the project for the most part has become unviable. I do not know of any syndicators that can make profit in a neighborhood that is under $30,000. 
I've made that mistake myself. I haven't been able to make money. Hmm. So to me, that first number that is an absolute is go into a neighborhood that has the income to support what you are trying to do. Keep in mind, you're trying to raise rents, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So even 38 is kind of borderline, right? I tend to basically use 40,000 as my minimum number. I have properties that are at 42, 44, 46, right? By the time, you know, if you're in the 50s, you're doing really well. If you're in the 60s, then your property is getting closer to a B. And by the time it hits $70,000, you are in a B area. So a C area, one of the definitions, my favorite definition of a C area is 40 to 70,000 in income, right? And a D area is $30,000 and below. So C minus is 40 to 30. Got it? Got it. Got so it. those are kind of the, de- and obviously these are, these are metrics I made up myself. You could successfully come to me and argue, no, in my area, it's, it's C minus is not 40 to 30. It's, you know, it's 35 to 25. I'll just say, okay, that's fine. These are rules of thumbs that appear to work in the vast majority of the United States that people are investing in. It may not work in your area. No argument. But I think that the, within, within the bounds of them being rules of thumbs, they do work really well because they allow me to understand the quality of an area. Okay. Got it. Um, there are states that have lower delinquency. You, uh, you know, Utah, for example, for cultural reasons, you can go a little bit lower than that simply because the the ten percent of their income is going to the church. Right. Everybody in in Utah, very religious people, they they contribute ten percent to the church, which means that when they do get in trouble, the church helps them out. Right. So many times. You, in Utah, you can have low delinquency even in markets that are under 35K. So that's a cultural issue, a cultural benefit that they have, but it doesn't necessarily apply to most parts of the US. So that's the first thing that comes up in that box. Remember, we're in city data, we're looking at the blue map, we're looking at the tiles and we're clicking on them and a black box comes up. Well, the first thing there was income. The second thing that comes up on that box is the poverty level, right? It's very much tied back to the income and poverty level. You want to be below 15% as much as possible. If you can be um, you know, below 10%, you're going to do really well. But 15%, I think, is acceptable. And if, you're, if you don't mind taking more risk, if, this is a, you know, if you're a new syndicator and you really need to get going, then maybe 20. But I can tell you if that number is 30, you can't make money. It doesn't matter how high the rents are. It doesn't matter how many units have been, you know, uh, have been bumped up by the previous guy and they have $200 in rent bumps and 300 and all that wonderful stuff. It doesn't matter. At 30% poverty levels, you cannot get 12 consecutive months of rent from your tenants. So would you recommend, I mean, I know that's, a, that's the job of the active sponsor when they find deals, right? So even the passive investors should go and look at Deals that- Why not? Everything I told you, if you you know take this podcast and I mean it's going to be on James's website, you can go refer to it whenever the heck you feel like, right? Yeah. So it shouldn't take you as a passive investor more than ten minutes, to right? Yeah. The rule still applies, right? And 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 keep in mind that a lot of Class Cs are going to be borderline on this, so don't expect that good syndicators are really buying properties at you know at five percent um, you know uh, poverty levels. If they at five percent is not a good deal. At five percent, that's a class A area, and and uh, your syndicator is not going to make you any money. So there's no problem with it being borderline. You just don't want it to be too far from these numbers that I'm giving you. 
Correct, correct, correct. So right. let's say you get a deal today on the neighborhood that you know meets all your criteria, right? Poverty level, household income, and all that. So how would you go about underwriting that deal? What's the first thing that you would look at? Well, I look at the numbers at, at the same demographics numbers to determine what my delinquency numbers are going to be, right? Because I find that I can raise a property's um, occupancy. So there are certain levers that I have that a typical syndicator doesn't have. Syndicators don't have marketing teams, right? Their syndicators basically have a property manager and that property manager might be good at marketing or bad at marketing. They're typically bad, but they might be, but they're never excellent, right? So we basically decided early on that that extra value add that we have to add in that no one else is adding in is marketing. And by marketing, I don't mean investor marketing, I mean tenant marketing. So for every property that we have, we're actually adding more leads on top of what the property manager's generating. For some properties, it's 30% more than they're generating. In other properties, it's three times more than they're generating. So if they're generating 1,000 leads a year, we're generating 3,000 leads a year and giving those leads to them. So I can basically move the occupancy numbers up, you know, and I'm very confident about those. So I, I go back to delinquency. So I look at the delinquency of that particular area. Obviously, CoStar gives you delinquency numbers, so that's very good, useful information to have for, the, for that particular neighborhood. Um, uh, the, the other thing that I like to do is, and this is not always available, is you can get bank statements from friendly sellers. Not every seller gives it to you, but some do. And one of the nice things about the bank statements is that some property managers, previous property managers have basically put all the money in like in one check, but most of them actually put the money in like every few days. Like, so they, they collect the checks and then they go to the bank every day or every other day and they put the checks in. So to understand what the quality of the tenant base is and what they're capable of absorbing in terms of rent hikes, simply look at the checks to see how much of the money is coming in in the first five days. How much of it is coming in the next five days? How much of it is coming in the five days after that? Then the five days after that? Then the five days after that? They might be saying that my delinquency rate is 2%. But what if their delinquency rate was 25% on the 15th of the month? Right? Well, that area, that kind of area where, where you still have 25, 30% of the rent hasn't come in on the 15th, you have to be careful about not being over bullish on how much you can really raise the rents. There's a limit in that market, right? It may not be $200, it might be $120 that you can raise. And accordingly, you wanna also cut down on your rehab budget because your rehab budget can be 6,000, it can be 8,000, it can be 12,000. But in an area where you know, uh, overall you know, income levels are low, let's say 38,000, Mm-hmm. And you can see that, you know, 20, 30% of the tenants don't even play until the 15th. I'm not sure that there's any benefit to doing a $12,000 per unit rehab. I'm not even sure if you want to do an $8,000 per unit rehab. I think six or four might be better, right? Rehabbing does have benefits. The velocity at which you lease increases. Tenants like the newer units. But beyond a certain level, it's not that they don't like the units. Of course, they love it. They're just not able to pay for it. And you don't want to end up in a situation where the tenants, all of your new tenants that have come in, those are the guys that are becoming delinquent. Because really, they, they, their capability was to buy, to get $850 a month units, but they're all in the $1,000 upgraded units. 
And so now you, all of your upgraded units are the ones that have very high delinquency. So that when I'm underwriting, those are the sort of things I'm looking at. Got it, got it. Yeah, it's very interesting to see delinquency. And you said CoStar has the delinquency data? CoStar has neighborhood level delinquency data. Yeah, sub-market okay. level. So you can basically go in that, that very long report that's like 86 pages. They, it, has, it has average delinquency for a particular market. I'm not sure how they get it. Um, I, no, I, no idea. But what's yeah. nice is they also have expense data, right? So they have, you know, expense data. Obviously, we talked to property managers about expense data as well. But, but CoStar gives you, you know, kind of the the average expense for the submarket, the average uh, payroll for that particular submarket. I find that people trying to beat the average payroll by twenty percent are just, you know, it's wishful thinking. Yeah. How do you differentiate delinquency between the property management skill? versus real delinquency for the area? Because it could be just the property managers are not doing a good job, right? In I think so. Um, so we, so one of the services that we provide on in, in properties that have higher delinquency, you know, we sometimes we have operating partners that don't want to do it, but most of the time we do it is we make, my, my staff, our staff, not the property management staff, will make delinquency calls on the sixth or seventh. So we don't do it all the time. We don't want to do it. But let's say the property has consistent delinquency problems. Consistent, oh. right? One of the ways to figure out the answer to your question is, is, is this a tenant problem? Is this a PM problem? Uh-huh. Hire somebody, give them a script, have them call every tenant that is not you know, showing as having paid by the sixth of the month. Make three phone calls. Uh, actually make two phone calls and two text messages on the 6th and the 7th. Repeat the process on the 10th and the 11th. If you do that for three straight months and your delinquency is still a high, still high it's not a property manager problem. Mm-hmm. But you, you, you find that out after the fact, right? After you bought the property. Is there any way to find before you buy it? Well, I, um, other than the demographics information I gave you, no, not really. Because, because uh, the, the, the truth is, that it could still be a tenant-based problem, but it could be that the previous owner was self-managing the property and let in a bunch of deadbeats that should not have been in there. Mm -hmm. That, in my mind, is a management issue, but not a property manager issue. Mm -hmm. And that's also an opportunity. You bought this property because you think rents can be at 1,100 with low delinquency. Right now, they're at 900 with high delinquency. Okay, maybe the guy just let in a bunch of deadbeats, right? So you can ask for credit reports of the P, the last 25 people that have been put in. What was the actual credit report? Some owners will give it to you. Some won't. If they're not giving it to you, you have to question yourself why that is the case. Was he just basically trying to just fill up the property? And in that case, it's not such a bad thing. You just have to know that when you go in, you're going to have a lot of evictions to deal with. But in that case, it's not a tenant-based problem. It's not a property management problem. It's a previous owner problem, and you are going to benefit once you churn through all those bad tenants. You're going to have four years of good tenants in your property. So you can still hit your performa. You just need more maintenance budget. You need more operating budget, and you need your investors to be a little bit more patient because your first 12 months are going to be very rocky. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure you have seen a lot of financials when you're underwriting a deal, right? So is there any dirty secrets by sellers that you have found from the financials or when you walk the unit and see, ha, they should have, they are tweaking these numbers here to make the property more appealing to the buyer. 
Well, I, I mean, everybody has their own stories about these financials, right? So the one that I find that is fairly common is that, um, you know, if you're going into a property, you want to be able to tell during your due diligence, right? Don't do this during the contract negotiation, not a good idea. But during your due diligence, you basically call them and say, hey, we'd like to talk to a bunch of your tenants, right? And you randomly, randomly always pick a bunch of tenants to talk with and make sure that there's nothing shady about their rent, right? So you have a tenant that's at $900 and everybody else is at 800. Let's pick that tenant, let's talk with him. Let's make sure that there isn't some side deal where that tenant actually is paying 900 bucks and is being reimbursed $200 in cash. Has that happened? That has happened, (laughs) not in a 250 type unit, unit type property, but in a 70, 80 unit type property. Basically, what had happened was all the new tenants that had started in the last four months were all receiving cash back, hmm. right? And between the, I think there were 12 tenants and between them, $2,400 a month of artificial rents were, were created, wow. which is $2,400 a month is $30,000 a year. $30,000 a year at six cap is basically $480,000. So that $480,000 for the seller was created by him negotiating direct deals with those those 10 people and giving them $200 kickbacks. So his cost was $2,400 a month for three months and his profit was $500. Wow. I, I never heard that. That's really sneaky, right? So Very sneaky, but, but you think about how much of an incentive the guy has to do it, right? Mm. Technically, it's not illegal, by the way. So It's not illegal? Uh, it's not illegal. He he has to disclose it to you that there's okay. a side arrangement, okay. but you can't actually send somebody to jail for this. I mean, you can't sue them and, and win, in my opinion. You, you, I think you can't say he's a fraud? I mean, that's what... I think you can. Uh, I think that, that that's going to be, you know, that's going to be fought over in court. In my mind, it's it's something that you should basically, in due diligence, if you look at higher numbers... Make sure you talk with those tenants. It doesn't take that much time. During due diligence, you're at the property for multiple days, right? Why not have conversations with four or five people and make sure everything's above board? Hey, hey, well, we were, we're looking to buy this property and, and just checking your, your rent contract. It shows that it shows $900 a month. Is that correct? Right? Mm-hmm. And if the guy, if there's anything shady at that guy, that guy is not going to fall on his sword for the, for the previous seller. Yeah, I've done all due diligence for my properties. I never talk to the tenants. Do you, do they allow to talk to the tenants when you are doing? Usually they do. I mean, obviously they they won't allow you to talk to a hundred tenants, but Mm -hmm. um, if you randomly pick three or four, they do. It's it's just not uh, something that people ask for commonly, but uh, there's no reason for them to have an objection. Yes. Yes. Um, So, so that's, that's one that I've seen commonly. The other one that I've seen commonly is that Everything that you're looking at is actually coming out of the property management software, not from the bank statements. So you look at the property management software and it says one hundred and eleven thousand dollars in monthly, you know, fee, uh, you know, rents. But when you look in the bank, it's just eighty-eight, right? So what they're doing is basically they're not allocating for bad debt properly, and they're saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, you know, it's just, you know, we 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 have this line item in our, you know, this is the way that our property management blah 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 software works." What they're trying to basically say is, "Oh, I'm sorry, you caught us, but but we're going to try and explain it away as some idiosyncrasy of the way our property management software works." But, you know, yeah, we didn't actually make 111 that month. We we only made 80, 88 thousand, 
right? Wow. So I think reconciling bank statements to what the property management software says is is very useful. It also gives you they may not be they may not be trying to screw you over or anything. So the difference may not be 88 to 111, might be 88 to 91, but it still shows delinquency in that property. So have, have you had any of these cases and you backed out of the contract? Yeah, I have. Okay. It's also tricky nowadays, right? In the hot market nowadays, because people are paying day one hard money. It's very you- difficult. That's 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 what scares me a lot. I mean, it, you know, you pay hard money and then you find something where they have tricked you. The only way to get that money back is to sue them. Correct, correct. Because people are paying like, I mean, in a hot market, like $200,000. Yeah, even $200,000. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, that that tells me that something is wrong. Yeah, yeah. In my mind, there is no conceivable reason why anyone should pay $200,000 hard on day one. Mm-hmm. This is all frenzy that has been created by brokers and is a sign of an unbalanced market. There is no reason why that should ever happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do have uh, something called early access agreement where you can go and see, you know, the rent roll and all that. But you can't do, I mean, you can do a, a, a thorough due diligence. Some sellers allow it. But nowadays, even that, nowadays, they don't allow. I mean, Well, in my mind, James, I mean, if, if that is their intent, why don't they just say, okay, well, we'll go hard on day five, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when people want you to go hard on day one, uh, either they, what, there's no way to tell if they are doing it because they are uh, unethical or simply because they want you know somebody who has enough skin in the game and enough confidence in his ability to close the the majority of the time the reason is 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 perfectly legitimate that they want you to close and so they want you to go hard on day 1 right correct but i don't think that that's the reason 100% of the time or anywhere close to 100% of the time Awesome. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a bit scary when you do day one hot money. So coming back to value add, I presume all the deals you're, you're doing is value add deals. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, not, not a deep value add or not the completely. So we, I have some deep value adds, but a lot of them are, you know, standard $6,500 type value, value adds. Okay. So what is the most valuable value add that you see? Oh, it's easy. So the most valuable, this the single most valuable value add are USB ports, uh, one in the kitchen and one in the bedroom. So of all all value adds, nothing comes close to that. Really? Especially just because everybody needs a USB port? It's because port. It, everybody that comes in comments on it, right? So hmm. everybody that comes in comments on it. And, you know, th- this is one of those universal things where men and women comment on it equally. Hmm. Um and uh, an even better value add is, you know, these days the wall plates, right? Mm-hmm. So you get the wall plates with the two USB ports, correct? So if you want to really wow people, the new USB-C standard, pay $4 extra for one that has two standard USB ports, but the one in the middle is that new USB-C. Port. Wow. Yeah. So I think those are incredible, incredible value adds. They give you, you know, 100x return. Awesome, awesome answer. That's that's absolutely helpful. So Neil, let's go to a bit more personal side of questions, right? So why do you do what you do? I, you know, the truth is I fell into it, right? So this hasn't been a conscious thing. I did technology. I started doing real estate because I was paying fifty percent in tax. So basically, tax avoidance was the the primary reason why I fell into real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 
I think the bigger thing was that on the technology side, when I had W-2 income, you know, many years I made more money than I made in real estate. Um, but I but I always felt nervous. It's like when you have a $350,000 salary, you're always nervous about your position. Like I always have to perform. I can never have a bad year, right? Because they might start thinking, well, we could hire two guys for 175K each and get rid of this guy, Neil, right? So there was always that nervousness about not being in control of my destiny. And I don't feel that now. It doesn't matter if I have a bad year and I only make 100 grand, but I still have control of my destiny and always make it up next year. Um, So to me, I think it it was less about ownership and more about control over my destiny. Okay, okay. But so do you, will you be keep on buying deals? I mean, is that what your plan is? I mean, where do you want to stop? Or is there a place so what drives well, you to fight the next deal? In, in my mind, what drives me is that I still feel like I'm creating value in each additional project. I'm finding some way to make those projects work. I'm, I'm contributing I, and I'm, I'm making investors happy and also you know, increasing my own net worth. Will I keep doing it? No. I, I think that truth be told, I mean, I, I admire people like JC, JC Castillo who just love it so much. He says, Neil, I'm, I'm going to be doing this for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, if I know one thing for sure, I mean, you're very sure about what you just said, JC. I met him, met him recently. I know for sure I won't be doing this in 30 years. And I know for sure I may not even be doing it in 10 years. I mean, um, to me, I think that life is an evolution. And I don't mind telling my investors, look, I'm, I'm going to do this for five to 10 years. And then I'd like to do something else because my career is very diverse. I've done, you know, solar education. I've done, you know, basically businesses around nursing. I've done high technology, like three different kinds of high technology, staffing, consulting, education services. Um, I've even, you know, been a, a primary investor in a gas station. I, I like, I'm an entrepreneur. and what that means is at some point, I want to create the systems and processes so other people smarter than me can continue running the business forward. And um, so my most coveted title is not founder and it's not CEO, it is chairman. And so the long-term goal is that at some point I want to switch to doing that, but I would not hesitate to shut down the business if I didn't feel I was adding value. That if this business only survives when it adds value. If it doesn't add value, making it or forcing it to survive makes it a parasite. Hmm. So when you say add value, means add value to your personal life? Add value to my investors. Okay. So by default, so I, I don't say add value to my personal life because if I add value to my investors, mm-hmm. the adding value to my personal life is automatic. It, mm-hmm. it happens by default, right? So to me... The only kind of add value that we we should be looking at is adding value to our investors. And if it doesn't add value, we'll do something else. Doesn't mean I'll go out of real estate. You know, one of the things is I'm a very unusual syndicator in that half of my projects are new construction. The project that I'm, you know, that I'm coming out with this week is called The Grid. It's a $30 million, you know, student housing project, new construction. And so... Why? Because I'm beginning to, as the market shifts and class C properties become so expensive that everyone's buying six cap on actual or, or five and a half cap on actual, um, then it's my, in the back of my mind, I'm going, well, you know, I can make a brand new class A for seven cap. I know it's risky during construction, 
But let's say I get through the construction phase. Isn't it less risky? Because at this point, you know, maybe it's not seven cap, maybe six and a half cap. But don't I have a six and a half cap class A building? What's the worst that could happen? We have a recession after drop rents. So what? It's still a seven cap building and it's brand new. Correct, correct, correct. Right? That part of it now is not going to change if I can't raise my rents. So I look at that and I go, you know, there's this this whole business of buying class C's at five and a half cap is scaring me. Yeah, I was talking to a broker the other day. He was trying to get me to buy a 1960s product at six cap. You say, oh, for six cap, it's Austin, it's, it's good. Now then I say, what about B class 1980s? Oh, it's like five and a half cap. I say, I'd rather buy the five and a half cap rather than buying a six cap. Doesn't make I, sense, right? So, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Honestly, you should not be there, you know, between a B and a C, if there's a half cap difference, always buy the B. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So is there anything that you do in your daily life that you think has contributed to your effectiveness in becoming very successful? I think structure. I'm a, I'm a robot that, you know, um, has some, some, some human, uh, you know, characteristics. And I like being a robot. I'm extremely structured, absolutely structured all the time. And I feel that it's difficult for people to tie themselves to structure. That's a very hard thing to do because we feel like we are losing something about ourselves. We feel like we're losing a part of our humanity. What I've found is that it's actually the reverse. I'm very structured. I start my work. I work with an extremely high intensity and then I stop. And when I stop, I completely stop. Hmm. I have nothing to do with work. Because I, I, I make sure that every second of those 11 hours or 10 hours that I work really count, right? And to me, I think that that makes, makes uh, me have a significantly greater output than, than other, some other folks. Got it, got it. Any advice for newbies who want to start at multifamily? Yes, right now, be careful. I think that please understand that while there is no crash on the cards, I don't believe in all this nonsense about, you know, prices going down 20%. People say that they clearly don't understand macroeconomics, but you are buying at the peak. This may be a peak that is sustained for a significant amount of time due to the fact that we've, we've got, basically it's very difficult for prices to come down um, uh, because of macro reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're certainly not going to see the kind of all ships rising effect that we have seen in the last five years. You're starting now. Please do not apply the past to your present. This is a tough time. It's going to be very hard. If I was starting today in 2019, uh, the 20, you know, 2013 version of me would advise the 2019 version not to start. That's how frank I have to be. If you're starting, that's fine. But I think you should be cautious and be aware of what kind of environment you're in. Got it, got it. Well, Neil, thanks for coming to the show. Can you let our audience and listeners know how to get hold of you and how to find you? Sure. I think the best way is through education. I'm an educator. Um, I connect with people through education. I have a portal called multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the word u.com. We have about 50 webinars that we do every year on multifamilyu.com. We archive all of them. They're, they're deep dive webinars. 
Um, they're very different from podcasts because there's a lot of, you know, uh, displayed content. Um, and tens of thousands of people attend those webinars each year. So that's probably the best way to connect with me. I don't mind people having my direct email address. My uh, email is neil, that's the Irish spelling, uh, N-E-A-L, neil at multifamilyu.com. Um, so you connect with me. I also connect with people on Facebook. I think I've about 10,000 people connected with me on Facebook. Um, and then uh, multifamilyu.com. If you want to learn more about demographics, I have a free course. It's at udemy.com, U-D-E-M-Y.com slash real focus. And um, that course, I think right now has about a thousand people enrolled. So usually has a a thousand, twelve hundred people enrolled at any given point of time. So that's also completely free course. We don't believe in pitches. Uh, if you're a presenter and would like to present on our platform, approach us, but it has to be pitch free. Awesome, Neil. Thanks for coming and adding huge value to our audience and listeners. It has been, uh, I'm sure everybody would have learned uh, a ton of things today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.